picking up uh, from uh, Pete May there, uh, but with a slight bit of uh, overlap, I'm uh, going to look at uh, what's sometimes been called the lunatic liar lord argument, uh, defending uh, the trilemma as uh, another term that this argument goes by in apologetic circles. Um, this is uh, Professor John Duncan, uh, overlapping the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, he said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma, the earliest reference to this term that I found, it is inexorable. Uh, it's an argument that was uh, made particularly well known by the writings of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he puts it in somewhat more sort of florid literary language, and he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. Uh, you must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worth. You can shut him up for a fool, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. Now, this uh, argument, I want to frame it as an inductive type of argument, and one that contributes to uh, a cumulative case, the kind of case that we make in a court where we have lots of different bits of evidence that all point in the same direction and which together convince us of a particular viewpoint. Um, there's a cumulative case for Jesus' deity that we're mounting uh, that on its own, I think, certainly provides some evidence, the argument that I'm going to give tonight, provides some evidence that Jesus was Lord. But it might not necessarily um, seem to you, or indeed to me, that this is an argument that on its own would convince you. It's part of an accumulation of evidence, some of which we'll be looking at uh, next week indeed. Um, this argument from Jesus' self-image and how we explain it would be one of five different arguments that I'd compile together. I'd also be um, wanting to look at things about Jesus' miracles, about his resurrection from the dead as a particularly well-evidenced uh, miracle, um, about his fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, not just his conscious fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, like riding a donkey, which he could kind of look up the scriptures and go, okay, well, I'm going to do that then. But the sort of things that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies without having conscious control over them, things like where he was born, um, how he died, and so on. And finally, religious experience, uh, including contemporary uh, religious experience that can be connected with Jesus. And these various points, you think of them as five ways, or by analogy with Thomas Aquinas' five ways for the existence of God. Um, and this is a sort of a graph way of kind of explaining the nature of a cumulative case. Uh, if we have a, a sort of scale of probability here, from zero, meaning absolutely impossible, like um, having a square circle, through to one being absolutely necessary, uh, like two and two equaling four, then 0.5 would be complete, absolute agnosticism, one way or the other, 
about the claim that Jesus was divine. You might think to yourself, how sceptical am I about the truth of that claim before I've met any evidence about it? Now, someone who's quite a hardline atheist down here might put themselves at you know, 0.1. Someone who's uh, an agnostic might be sort of up here somewhere. Someone who's uh, only slightly sceptical, uh, maybe just up here. But all of these people don't believe that it's more probable than not that Jesus was divine. However, by the time they've all been through uh, an accumulation of five different arguments, and in this case they just happen to all agree about the relative strengths of those arguments for the sake of simplicity, uh, if they all thought that you know, this first argument raised the probability by half a, half a percentage point and so on, then by the time they've been through these five arguments, maybe our hardline atheist would be agnostic at the end of the argument. But maybe our agnostic would be fairly sure that Jesus really was divine, and so on. So the argument from Jesus' self-image, how does Jesus' self-image and what we can know about that historically affect our assessment of the probability that Jesus was indeed divine on our background knowledge? We would want to look at that evidence for his self-image and then move on to a stage of explanation. What's the, the best explanation of that self-image. Looking at the evidence for his self-identity, you could divide it into direct evidence, his explicit and implicit claims to deity made by Jesus' teaching and deeds, but also indirect evidence, some of the stuff that Pete mentioned at the beginning of his talk briefly, the belief of the early Christians. Uh, this book is on the book table, if you're interested, putting Jesus in his place. The Case of the Deity of Christ by Robert Bowman and uh, J. Ed Komazuski, I believe that's pronounced. Great name. Um, they've got a kind of useful uh, memory device going through the scriptures and showing how uh, Jesus has attributed the honours, the attributes, the names from the Old Testament, the deeds, and the seat, the judgment throne of God in that culture. And that by claiming all of these things which makes up the acrostic hands, that shows through a wide variety of data his self-image. Now, Professor uh, Teabing from the Da Vinci Code might think things like, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, the sort of uh, good moral teacher that C.S. Lewis was talking about, but a man nonetheless. Jesus' establishment of the Son of God, says Teabing in the Da Vinci Code, was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, which happened in uh, 325 AD. Before that, he was just a, a good moral teacher. Poppycock. Um, <laughs> even just from archaeology, this is a, an example I, I love to smuggle in because I didn't get to do a talk this year on biblical archaeology. Um, this is a Christian prayer hall found near Medigo, uh, dated to about 230 AD, so 100 years prior to the Council of Nicaea. And you'll notice things like this uh, mosaic here with some pictures of fish in them, which is interesting, of course, because uh, fish in Greek, the word fish is an acrostic that early Christians used that stood for uh, the words Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. So it's interesting that they've got some pictures of fish in this prayer hall. Even more interesting, though, is this inscription about the communion table in the middle of the prayer hall. 
And this inscription, there's a uh, enlarged detail of it, reads thus. The God-loving Acaptus has offered the table to the God, Jesus Christ. It's been pointed out by one historian that the oldest Christian sermon, the oldest liturgical prayer, the oldest account of a Christian martyr, Stephen, the oldest pagan report of the church, all refer to belief in Jesus as being divine. And the kind of trilemma argument that you can apply to Jesus' direct claims also applies to the disciples' claims on his behalf. This is uh, American philosopher Peter Kreeft. He says... What was the motive of whoever first invented the divine Jesus myth, if we're going to take this hypothesis? What did they get out of this elaborate blasphemous hoax? Uh, For it must have been a deliberate lie, he argues, no Jew confuses creator with creature. They're very hot monotheists, the Jews. Here's what they got. Their friends and families scorned them. Their social standing, possessions, and political privileges were stolen from them by both Jews and Romans. They were persecuted, imprisoned, whipped, tortured, exiled, crucified, eaten by lions, like St. Ignatius that I looked at last week in 108 AD, and cut to pieces by gladiators. It's not a great motivational package, is it? Uh, Peter Kreef's written a very uh, interesting and readable book on this whole argument, Uh, called Between Heaven and Hell, a dialogue somewhere beyond death with John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley, three men who all died on the same day in 1963. And he uh, highlights the paradox of Jesus for us in quite a nice way. We could grid it like this. We've got uh, people who do not claim to be divine, and then there are people who do claim to be divine. There are two kinds of people kind of thing. On the other hand, we've got, there are two kinds of people. There are people that you know, most people would admit are, are sages, are wise, and very wonderful uh, teachers. And on the other hand, there are non-sages. And Kreef says, look, people who don't claim to be divine and who aren't sages, well, that's most people. That's most of us. That's us here in this room. People who do not claim to be divine but who are recognized as being sages, maybe you could count on one hand, probably no more than two, people like Buddha, Socrates, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Moses. What about people who do claim to be divine? He says, well, of course, there are lots of people who claim to be divine and who aren't recognized as being sages. Um, We call them uh, lunatics, perhaps a slightly un-PC word nowadays, but we'll go with our alliteration. And so there are a number of people in that category. Then he says, well, what about people who do claim to be divine, but whom the majority of people would recognize as being a sage, someone on a par with Socrates and Confucius and so on? One name. Only one person in that category. That raises for us, highlights for us, the paradox of explaining who Jesus was. So what is the best explanation of this data? I think we have some logically limited explanatory options, which I'll graph for you like this. Um, Given that Jesus claimed divinity, that claim was either true or false. If it was true, well then of course he was divine. If it was false, there seemed to be 
these two options. That either he, he knew that that claim was false, he was lying his head off and blaspheming, or he didn't know that that claim was false. He sincerely but mistakenly believed that he was divine, which goes into our category of being a loony. To the extent that you think the lunatic and liar options are improbable, so to that same extent you must think it's improbable that his claims are false, and thus more probable that his claims were true. Well, was he a liar, a blasphemer? Um, in that culture, this is a very uh, big thing. It seems to be out of character with all the other data we have about him. I mean, why would Jesus, this sage, acknowledged as a great moral teacher, a devout Jew, certainly, why would he perjure himself by blaspheming in such a manner at his trial in particular? What would be his motive? Why would a, a clearly clever chap like Jesus lie about this at his trial, as Pete May looked at, when it secured a death sentence for him? If there was ever a time for a bit of theological nuance, that might have been it, but no. Uh, Peter Kreeft uh, argues that a measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you actually are. This is a good sort of almost definition of what it is to be insane. But surely for a mere human to sincerely think that they are divine constitutes a very significant mismatch between self-image and actuality. I mean, let me... I like illustrating a bit like this. If I uh, sincerely came to you in this room and said, look, guys, I am a pretty decent sort of chap, okay? Well, you might be prepared to give me the benefit of the doubt, at least, on that. If I came to the room and said, actually, I'm the nicest person in this room and you thought I sincerely meant that, you'd begin thinking that I was a bit conceited. Um, if I said to the room, I'm the most moral person in the whole world, and I really meant it, you're beginning to think that I'm pathological. If I come to the room and I say, I'm the most moral person there's ever been or could ever be, indeed, I'm perfect and without sin, who among you can convict me of sin? As Jesus said in John 8:46, you're now thinking, this guy is barking. Unless that's actually true, of course. So was he a loony? But again, it's, it doesn't fit well with the rest of our data. Given everything else we know about Jesus, his wisdom, his moral teaching, is it plausible to characterize the same person as a loony? Um, Kreef argues that Jesus has an abundance of precisely those kind of qualities that liars and lunatics conspicuously lack. Wisdom. Love, creativity. You could syllogize the argument like this. First one, given Jesus' claims to divinity, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or a lord. Second premise, Jesus probably is neither a lunatic nor a liar. Conclusion, therefore Jesus is probably lord. I'd like to round off by responding to two criticisms that are sometimes made of this lunatic liar lord argument the first that you'll meet from a lot of people is to say um, look this argument's too quick because it's just assuming that Jesus made those claims it just says given that he did this launching off into the argument well 
Yes, it does, but we've spent some time here, and Pete made before me, establishing that claim on historical grounds. That's uh, a separate argument, if you like, and this one follows on from it. So it's not an unsound argument in that sense. Secondly, many people will criticise the logical validity of this argument, and here I really don't think that they've got a leg to stand on. Um, Richard Dawkins, for example, thinks that it's a false dilemma underlying this argument. Uh, in this uh, interview with a journalist, he was asked about read, when he reads C.S. Lewis's work, you know, why do you think someone who's a scholar like Lewis is grabbed by faith? And here's Dawkins' reply uh, in all of its rhetorical splendor. Well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. He, after all, was a professor of English, and no doubt a very good one. But when you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. It did not seem to occur to him that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. Let's think about that. Jesus could simply be mistaken. He needn't be a loony, he needn't be a liar. He could just be sincerely and honestly mistaken about his claim that he's divine. Well, two quotes in response. First from Mike King, he says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. I think that gap uh, kind of between self-image and reality argument from Kreeft illustrates that well. But why should Dawkins and Al not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Why not pick one of the genuine options if you really want to go that way? Well, quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of these possibilities to be untenable. And I've loved this bit of humour from um, Nicky Gumbel. He says, The irony of the God delusion, Dawkins makes the same point, is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe in God. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. Doesn't seem to stack up for me.